Hello, I'm Mars Avila from Common Field, introducing Beyond Corporations and Nonprofits. What is an artist-led economy? From what now towards artist-led movements? Beyond the Block Creative Marketplace, a day-long arts vendors market, ran concurrently with this national conversation on Saturday, October 1st. The online program explored arts entrepreneurship and growing ecosystems of support toward a more human-centered creative economy. Seattle-based filmmaker and creator of And Other Oppressive Dynamics, Amy L. Pignon, Stella J. Brown of Chicago's Buddy, Jiguna Gushuru of People's Economy Lab, and Julie Chang Shulman of Seattle Artists Coalition for Equitable Development and Forever Safe Spaces came together in this conversation. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Zoom space. Thank you for being here. We're going to get going in just a second. We just got everything up and running in Washington Hall so you can see everyone. If you would like to turn on the captions, click more down in the bottom panel and press the captions button on the drop down or I guess drop up menu. We have live captioners uh, there to provide that access need. Maud, are you ready for me to hand it off to you? I believe it'll be handed off to me. <laughs> Julie, I'll hand it off to Julie. Thank Take you so away, much. Julie. Thank you so much. Um, can y'all give me a thumbs up in the Zoom space if you can hear me? Or if, if the... Uh, Apologies, this is a very disjointed experience currently. All right, now I know where to find y'all. Hold on, I couldn't even see the gallery before. Okay, there we go. There we go. Shouts out to those of you in the physical space below as well. Um, thank you for being a part. I wanna acknowledge and apologize for earlier having to remove the, the surfaces, the screen above from the live session. Thank you so much for your forbearance as we do our very best. So this next session today is called Beyond Corporations and Nonprofits. Uh, what is an artist-led economy? I figure before we can begin on an endeavor like that, we have to first start by defining what is an artist, right? And um, when I say artist and artist-led, I mean the creative parts inside every human being, the generative parts, the ones that exist in alignment with the universe, in alignment with all. Um, also though, I think it's useful to define creative economy because this isn't just simply the business of art, but also technology, storytelling, media, and a significant subsector of the nonprofit industrial complex. 
especially in regions like we are here now where the disparity in growth of such sectors has resulted in significant disparity of wealth to where we have a huge excess that is channeled through a very complicated foundation system. And these are things that impact how we relate, how we think structures either conscientiously or subconsciously. Um, when we talk about creative economy, it's a buzzword I feel like of the past at least two decades, if not more. Um, but in recent years, the city of Seattle and King County overall has conducted a number of different studies on it. And um, one of the commonalities that comes through in every single one of them is the disparity that we experience um, within the current systems and structures that exist now for cultural workers and for artists. This is significant disparities in opportunities and resources in, um, for people of color, BIPOC folks, folks who are basically not cis white males. Um, we know fundamentally, you know, I believe that folks that are attracted to these conversations, folks that are in this room either on Zoom or if you're in this space here, we already know this has to do with the very limited, colonized, heteropatriarchal male way of how cultural labor is valued. But um, in coming into this conversation, I was excited to bring uh, three different folks that are doing work that embodies the opposite. And um, I'm gonna let them introduce themselves, uh, starting with, we'll start with Stella, who is joining us all the way from um, Chicago. Hi. Do you want me to do a real quick introduction before we get into a longer thing? Let's, yeah, maybe let's do that. Okay. <laughs> um, so my name is Stella Brown. I'm in Chicago. Um, I run Buddy, which is a store uh, downtown here in Chicago in the Cultural Center. We sell uh, work and products and goods from local Chicago area, arts makers, small businesses. We're part of the nonprofit Public Media Institute, which is based in Bridgeport here. And we're essentially a nonprofit store. So we're giving 60% of every sale right back to the artist. Um, I just, I am, <laughs> um, I'm from Chicago and uh, I recently got an MFA at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm also an artist myself, kind of installation and sculpture, um, but I'm very committed to staying local and I'm interested in, you know, Chicago itself and being part of this community. So Buddy is very much something that fits into that whole thing. Thank you so much for being in the conversation. Next, I'll have Chaguna, if you want to introduce yourself. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Chaguna Gishoro. I'm an uh, MC from the city of Seattle, South Seattle in particular. Also work um, as a lab leader with the People's Economy Lab, where we work to advance a regenerative economy um, by supporting new economic systems and models that center and empower communities of color. Really excited to be here. I'm really excited to be a part of this community and to be connected again uh, through my girl, Julie C., uh, to the community at Washington Hall. Excited to have the con. And then last but not least, Amy. 
Hey everyone, uh, my name is Amy Pignon, she, her pronouns. I am currently in Seattle, Duwamish land, and I, um, I'm a filmmaker, I'm a photographer, I do a lot of creative things, and um, today I will be speaking about sort of my experiences within the nonprofit industrial complex and uh, centered around a film that I created about um, some of those dynamics, um, which we'll get into a little bit later. So, Just wanted to say thank you to all of you for being a part of this conversation. Um, I thought it was a really dope trifecta here and complimentary because we have somebody, we all know the importance of physical spaces when we talk about innovation, but I think also we need to innovate our analyses and so that's why I really appreciated Amy's work and also giving um, intentional space and the kind of cohort building and work that uh, the People's Economy Lab is doing as well. It is, it is all a big part of creating new and sustainable structures for existence that shift how our cultural and creative labor is valued so that it could uplift from the bottom um, and not just uh, fit the boxes that they try to put us in. So I'm going to um, have each of the folks that are in the conversation dig a little deeper um, into the work that they are doing and then we're going to open it up to um, both folks on the Zoom and in the space to dialogue, uh, to share, to ask any questions, really want it to be a, um, a blend of, uh, yeah. So um, Stella, would you be down to kick sure. us off here? <laughs> Thank you. Sure. Um, yeah, so a little more, um, I guess, about the store, about Buddy. Um, our nonprofit Public Media Institute also has an exhibition space in Bridgeport called Co-Prosperity that's been around for over 10 years. Um, we publish Lumpen Magazine, which is 30 plus years old, and uh, we have Lumpen Radio. We do a number of different programs, but in the fall of 2019, I came on um, the City of Chicago, which is the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, DCASE had an open call for proposals to open what they were calling an art store. <laughs> and so I jumped in um, and we won the proposal. They give us a space within the cultural center. If you're not familiar, it's this beautiful big old building from the late um, 19th century. It was the original um, Chicago Public Library. And so it's it's known as the People's Palace. It's really like, it's run by the city of Chicago, but it's open to everyone, always free. They have a number of art exhibitions and public programs. Um, so it was, it was kind of the perfect place to have something that's really like for the people. And we were meant to open in April of 2020, but we all know what happened then. <laughs> and so instead of opening a physical space, we got everything online so we have this huge built out website um we ship around the country but i can i have a couple um images i can share just to give you a sense of what i'm talking about um no wait it's not letting me share my screen sorry about that um okay i'll just keep telling you about it and you can google it later <laughs> um uh, as we kind of like, we're putting the store together, obviously coming from from Chicago, our organization has been in Chicago for years. We obviously had like a network 
a network of people, of artists and makers and writers and cultural producers that we knew that we kind of like had put together into who we wanted to be in the store. But we also started an open application system. So on our website, we have, you know, in the main menu, you can click and apply, propose things to sell. And that really, um, I think, changed what the store has become in a really great way. It's it's made it accessible to anyone that makes anything within the Chicagoland area. It's we have a small staff and it's been quite a task to get in and review those <laughs> once or twice a year, but we've gotten together panels to help review. Um, uh, so now the store, I wish I could show you a photo, but we've got fine art, we've got books, music, clothing, like toys and games you know, functional home products. We've got this huge range of stuff. And I guess I've, I've described it in the past as being like, almost like an archive or a showroom of, you know, people who are making things in Chicago at this moment. We've, at any moment, we have over 200 artists or makers represented in the shop. Um, but I was just looking at our list of vendors yesterday and we've gone through 100, 415. So in the last, um, and that's just people who are selling in the shop itself. And so in the last year and a half, two years, we've gotten that many people to a space in downtown Chicago where they never would have, um, they never would have been able to, you know, be represented in a store. It's like, it's Michigan Avenue, it's the Magnificent Mile. So it's like all these big name stores. And so to have this kind of like, what feels like community space and space for the artists of Chicago is really nice. And I know the, the artists that we work with appreciate it. Um, one other thing really quick, and then I can, I can let other presenters talk is we, um, we run an exhibition program within the store because we're kind of like skirting this line of it's a store, but it's a gallery. It's like gallery sell art. We're selling everything. So kind of messing with that. Um, so we've done a number every couple months we do a different, kind of like curated group exhibition. So we've done um, contemporary comic artists. We did a show where artists collaborated with local pinata makers to make pinatas. We've just yesterday opened a show um, with Envision Unlimited, which is a, a nonprofit for adults with disabilities. And they run an arts program where they make these like fabulous giant shag carpets using recycled materials. So where in addition to selling our kind of like permanent collection of stuff, we're like rotating people through so that, you know, 400 vendors is more like 600 when you count all the people that have gone through. Um, so I could go on and on, but maybe that's good to start. Awesome, thank you so much uh, for that background. It, it reminds me, we our city just launched the Seattle Restored program where um, there's like temporary storefront pop-ups going on and so I'm curious. I have a lot of questions but, but prior to that I guess um, I would love to hear from, I forgot who I said we were gonna have go next but <laughs> I'll let you to AB, whoever's prepared to speak, to share. I can jump in. Uh... Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Stella. Hi, everybody. My name is Jaguna Gishoro, and I'm a lab leader with the People's Economy Lab. Um, and to share a little bit about our work, um, we work basically to support local leaders in the Seattle King County area that are advancing new economic systems and models that center and empower our communities. Um, recognizing that, right, the wider economy that we all know is 
sort of extractive and oppressive of our needs. Um, our organization recognizes that there's this sort of a need to re-engineer how the economy looks and how we define the economy and to support the leaders in our community who are constantly doing that, but often go unrecognized. And so uh, some of the great things I get to do is to work with and support folks in our community that are giving life to some of those strategies and models that redefine how we manage home. Um, recognizing that the economy as a term, right, really means the management of home, how we choose to manage our society, ourselves, and our resources, and that the rules of the dominant economy are made to seem like a force of nature, but they're not. They're defined by folks who want to enclose wealth and power for themselves. And so we try to do our best to support those folks in our communities that are redefining and restructuring how the economy looks and to provide them with things like funding and networks of support and to help to create those circles of support that they need. And often we find that the folks that are doing that and leading the charge are artists, right? Creative engineers, creative leaders um, that are often the folks that are the first to redefine and to challenge how the structures look. And um, it's inspiring to see that artists are at the forefront of that and are constantly working to reshape how the economy looks and how society looks. Um, and so in the work that we do, um, we specifically workshop around transformative ideas and strategies. Um, we are sort of the folks that do a lot of the research, bring back a lot of strategies to share with our communities, and then to workshop with folks, um, what can we embrace and connect with? Um, we convene community leaders. Often we find that folks right, are doing the work, your head is down, we're all in our sort of arenas of battle, and sometimes don't have the time to convene with us across lines. And so try to provide spaces for us to convene and connect with folks from throughout our community that are working towards transformation and then working directly to support building better economic models. And when we say that again, it's just ways of organizing ourselves to support um, our continuing to live and thrive. And so often that is working with folks who are artists um, to find ways to create those systems to get value for the work that you're doing as an artist recognizing that art has its intrinsic value. It has its social value, spiritual and psychological value. And so working with folks to help create systems to access um, the economic justice artists need continue to do the work that artists are doing, which is really healthcare for our entire community and inspiration for our entire community. So I'm really excited to have conversations with y'all about what folks are doing and how we can move things forward. Thank you so much. And there was a, quest, a request to, um, if we could slow down a little bit for the interpreters would be supportive. Thank you so much. And um, Amy, you want to do us a deep dive? Thanks. Um, so as I mentioned already, I uh, come from a nonprofit background and I worked within nonprofits for about six years. I actually came in as an AmeriCorps member working at an arts nonprofit. I continued to work there for six years. Within that time, I also became a board member at another nonprofit. So I was very deeply embedded within this nonprofit industrial complex. Um, and just real quick before we go forward on that, because just in case anyone is unfamiliar, nonprofit industrial complex 
um, on a basic level deals with the interconnection of institutions, uh, which is the nonprofit, government, um, foundations or funding institutions, and how all of those play into each other um, and influence what uh, institutions can do. So particularly with nonprofits, a lot of it is about controlling dissent, which is oftentimes why a lot of movements, a lot of um, activist movements cannot thrive within the nonprofit industrial complex because you're having, in order to get funding for nonprofits, you're having to sell your programs and your mission and all of this, what you're doing to people that will give you the money to do that. And so you sort of have to have this clean uh, image of what you are doing, this clear vision, but oftentimes, especially for more grassroots movements, that's very difficult to do. Um, so basically, I came into nonprofits, was working within there for six years. I was very burnt out. I became basically the sole communications department, uh, which is you know a, a familiar story at a lot of nonprofits and I was very burnt out. I also plateaued in my skills of what I could do there. I was also very much underpaid and I decided I needed to leave. Um, I was thinking about it for a while, but the final push sort of came when I saw that there were some staff members that raised very valid equity issues within the organization and actually proposed a whole plan for moving forward, a lot of actionable steps reducing the um, the wage disparity between you know executive leadership and all of the other on the ground staff, creating more equitable hiring practices, HR practices. Um, and it seemed like everyone was on board with that plan until they weren't. And so those staff members were kicked out. And that was the final push for me to say, I can no longer work here with integrity. I need to get out of this job, I need to get out of this institution, I need to go and do my own thing. And so I had always been really interested in doing filmmaking. And so um, as of last month, I it has it has now been three years since I left the nonprofit uh, industrial complex, and I have been self employed since then. And that leads me to sort of what I want to talk a little bit about right now. And I have a quick presentation around this. Um, which is my film that I have been working on for the past year. Um, and let me just get this up into present mode. Um, and I don't believe I can see the chat while I am presenting. So just if you can't see this or if anything is going wrong, please just feel free to interrupt me verbally. Um, but basically I started on this film concept where you know I, I didn't see anything like this being uh, talked about. Um, a lot of people don't want to talk about their, these experiences. They're afraid of retaliation. They still want to work within the system, which is totally fine. Um, but they don't want to share these things because um, the fear of, of retaliation or fear of not being able to find new work um, and all of that. And obviously, you know, we have to prioritize being able to meet our needs and um, make money. So I know of a lot of people who have not been able to step out of toxic work situations, but I wanted to really highlight um, what was happening within the sector. And I didn't want to use all of these buzzwords that a lot of uh, nonprofits are using. I wanted to highlight stories and people 
Um, so I came up with this film concept, uh, just the quick log line here about the film faced with the toxic work culture, burnout and discrimination, Seattle based nonprofit workers find a way to heal from the oppressive dynamics that have perpetuated the nonprofit structure for far too long. And I just want to say that this was based in Seattle. It obviously resonates far and wide in other cities, everywhere where there's a nonprofit, these dynamics replicate themselves. Um, I already talked about nonprofit industrial complex. So I just want to sh share a quick clip um, from the film, which is about the problem woman of color. And I just wanted to share this because I think in thinking about moving forward and how we move beyond this system, how we move toward a place where there is more equity, how we actually change um, and still exist within it, because it's not like the nonprofit is going to be abolished overnight. And in fact, you know, of course, I also want to preface this is not saying that I think um, nonprofits need to uh, just like disappear. I think they're doing great work that the government is not doing, but that's part of the problem is we have this system that relies on all of these nonprofits to do this work that the government won't do. Um, and in some ways, perhaps maybe it's in better hands, not in the government, but that's another conversation. But the problem with woman of color is a concept that was coined by, I just want to make sure I get my credits on this, coined by Safe House Progressive Alliance for Nonviolence. And this illustration was adapted by the Center for Community Organizations. So I'm just going to show you this quick clip of Clara Olivo talking about her experience. You know, the problem woman of color, that's me, right? So a woman of color enters the organization. She is met by a panel. Our audio, we just lost our audio on this one, Amy. Problem, the, the woman of color comes into the workspace and she is, you know, meeting the expectations while simultaneously realizing that there is more to this place than meets the eye. She feels the microaggressions. She feels the tension that exists when she walks into the room. She's the, the woman of color begins to notice that things are not what they seem more so than originally thought. So she begins to ask questions. She begins to raise concern. And the very same people who welcomed her with open arms are the ones who push her out and away, trying to silence her. And instead of pushing her away, they just push her down, bury her deep until the woman of color has no choice but to claw her way out. And the problem is, is her, and she's made to believe that she is the problem, that the ideas and the thoughts and the energy that she brought when she first walked in is no longer the light that makes her glow. And she walks out dimmed, dull, lifeless. And the cycle repeats. Because when she goes, somebody else comes in. So just to show you another um, sort of what this uh, 
I guess, process or concept looks like here if you want to review that in a visual form. Um, I just wanted to point out that this was coined as the problem woman of color because it often is a woman of color, but this can be anyone. It can be anyone that particularly is not the dominant identity within the organization's leadership who comes in, voices issues, and then is subsequently pushed out because and blamed for the problems because um, this, you know, the organization doesn't want to deal with root causes. They don't want to deal with uh, this person that is seemingly to be the problem, uh, bringing up these issues and, you know, they don't want to work on the, the deeper uh, causes of why this is happening, um, which essentially all comes back to systemic racism. And they get to redefine that and just say, you know, well, this person wasn't the right fit for the organization. So we're just going to kind of blatantly or silently push them out um, so that we can avoid this quote unquote problem. Um, so I think, again, that just illuminates a pattern of harm that's happening. I think there is a better way to do uh, to to create structures within this system. However, we do have to consider that how, how do we survive within this system that wasn't created for us, that wasn't set up for us to survive, especially as people of color, especially as people who are not, you know, super privileged, are not of the dominant identity, um, who a lot of times these organizations are set up to serve. Um, so the film sort of explores all of these different stories and um, their experiences of harm, but also how they're healing and how we can move past um, and beyond some of these structures in order to create something that is better within that. How can we create something within this nonprofit structure and these confines um, that do have some advantages within them? How can we create something that is actually for the people, that is based in community, that does um, serve artists, that is led by artists, that is led by young people, um, that is led by the people that need to, that, that um, are bringing up these issues and uh, is not being, um, is not tokenizing people for their experiences, which is often what happens. So um, yeah, that's basically what I wanted to share about that. And I could talk about this forever, but I'm gonna um, pass it back to Julie. Thanks so much. Thank you so much um, to all of you for sharing and uh, getting us going in the conversation. I do want to open it up to the folks that are listening. Um, we have a lot of people on Zoom. We do have people here in the room. I don't know if the presenters can see the, uh, the sky angle down here at Washington Hall, but um, I guess in the spirit of helping to kick off, I, in listening to all of you talk, I, you know, my own organizing background would come from radical, you know, on the street style things. We, we speak a lot about the diversity of tactics and protests to, to create change, right? And when we think about the way that we are uh, reinventing something like an economy or how we relate to the resources and um, folks around us, can y'all share maybe from each of your, um, I guess, perspectives or in each of your work, like an example of how diversity and tactics, different combinations of solution making have might have resulted in um, in a unique outcome that otherwise might not have been present. And I guess I'll start with Jaguna as somebody who facilitates this kind of troubleshooting or um, workshopping amongst community organizers. And can you repeat the question again, Julie? 
an example of a unique combination of different tactics coming together, right? Like maybe not just nonprofit, maybe a combination of like individual entrepreneurship, nonprofit government, um, ways of that we are forced to combine what we have at our disposal to survive um, that might be unique or new to the folks listening. Okay, I got you. Thank you. I think a great example I think about is an organization called uh, Yahoo Indigenous Artists Collective locally that we've worked with, um, we're, which were a group of local indigenous artists and allies that came together recognizing that um, indigenous artists need opportunities to make a living, but to find mutual aid and support and also to navigate um, local systems with nonprofits and government. And so the group came together to collectively bring artists together to source opportunities so that they could collectively work together to find opportunities to work um, and to share the resources that come from that work, but also to provide circles of mutual aid and to use this um, institution to access funding at the time of the COVID pandemic to support indigenous artists while they were lacking work. Um, and so saw that as a really great example of an entity that is sort of controlled and run by the indigenous artists themselves, um, geared around meeting the needs of the artists in their communities, but is sort of working on multiple fronts, right? To get work for artists and to collectively organize around that work to support artists. And then they also work to collectively uh, support a campaign around the Black Lives Matter movement to create um, solidarity between indigenous communities and black communities. Um, and so they are also now working towards acquiring land um, to steward land and then to utilize that land to just keep land in the hands of indigenous people and to create space for cultural events and just placemaking. And so I think Yahoo is a great example of a sort of microeconomy that works for the um, benefit of the artists and their communities and mixes sort of a model between being um, a collective of folks that are doing work together, that are able to contract and get opportunities and help folks maintain a living, but also work to identify the needs of the collective and serve those needs and then uh, work together to advance causes that they collectively want to support. Um, so yeah, I think that's a great example of like an innovative model that folks are creating to solve their own problems. Thank you so much. Uh, I wanted to ask if any of our, I don't know if there's a mic down there on the floor, if we could maybe circulate a microphone down there so anybody in the space, um, if there's any questions that you might have, um, I welcome all of y'all on Zoom to also, if there's any questions that you might have, um, just to take that same, that same kind of question and shape it, reshape it for Stella's situation is working with a bunch of different individual makers. Are there any examples of folks that having access to that space, you've seen it be really transformative, maybe in their experience or anything that you'd like to share? Hi. I think, oops. Oh, is there a question? Yeah, I have a question for Amy. Um, I think it's really important um, to have this film seen as widely as possible um, because this phenomena happens in so many different institu institutions. I'm recovering and decolonizing from an academic life where I experienced it very profoundly, not just once, but many times. I had tenure twice 
and uh, in other situations. I mean, it's just the cruelest thing because you very rarely have allies and you are isolated and you have no one to talk to. So if you want to do a second film <laughs> that focuses on BIPOC folks in academia, uh, we're ready for that. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's there's so many things I could speak about uh, for my next film. I'm mostly prioritizing rest right now because it's been a lot uh, to go through all those experiences, to hear other people's experiences, to relive my own experiences. So I'm resting right now, but I, I hear you. I've heard that many times as well. So I, I'm aware. Academia, a whole other beast. I mean, like I like I mentioned, I did AmeriCorps. That's a whole other topic I could dive into. There's so much there. Um, but also, just wanted to say, if anyone has ideas for for distributing the film more widely, it just premiered at local sightings, which just ended on uh, last month. Um, but you can also request the screening on my website, which I put the link in the chat. Um, but I am looking to hopefully get it in front of more people and especially more people who can really resonate or, or actually I think a lot of people are, are watching it who can resonate um, but we need to get this in front of more people who are in leadership positions and who are uh, in more gatekeeping positions uh, who hold the keys to being able to really change institutions but thank you for bringing that up. I see a question here in the chat for, um, for Stella, for Buddy. And the question is, Carly says, I'm curious about the support given from the city of Chicago. Was that just to launch the physical space or sustained funding? Can you further explain how the city provides support for Buddy, um, if it's employees operational funding space, and if the city government funding affects who or what is curated in or not? Ooh, mm -hmm. that's, that's a lot of questions, I'll let you. Sure, sure. No, it's funny you ask because we are in the process of asking for money from the city. <laughs> they generally, they generously give us the space for free, but then have sort of left us to our own devices to fund it. And to be totally honest, it's because of the pandemic, because of where we are, we're not, you know, we're not making a ton of money and we do need support we're kind of trying to make them understand. I think they didn't fully understand when the shop first opened what it was, but it's really become, I think, a service to the artists of Chicago. It's not about us making money. It's about us helping artists make money for themselves. And I've had a number of people like thank us and express how appreciative they are of having this space to kind of like develop different products or sort of like, consider what is maybe more like formal or gallery art in a different context and find a way to monetize it that's a little more kind of like accessible and digestible um, for the general public. So we're really doing a service and we're, we're in the process of trying to get the city to understand that that's what we're doing, that if they want us to stay in the building and stay open, that we need a little help um, in the funding. So the, the main answer to the question is we're basically getting the space um, and we're working on getting, we could use more, more support, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. There was another question earlier um, 
again to Amy about whether or not you meant mainstream large nonprofits or if what you're talking about impacts also community-based organizations. And I didn't know if you wanted to speak to that. That's what CBO stands for, community-based organization, Britta, in response to Yeah, I sort of answered in the chat, but um, in my film, I'm, I'm speaking to six different people sharing their stories and they're coming from different uh, types of organizations, from smaller led organizations um, to larger, uh, more national organizations. So it really, it looks a little bit different, but it really does apply to any organization that operates within the nonprofit system. Hi, I have a question. Um, this is Sheetal. Hi. Um, I would love to hear from any of you um, from the work that you've done, from making films, doing advocacy work um, in, in your practices. Are there any things that you've learned in terms of like working in this field, having the identity that you have that you could share with the rest of us? I feel like what you're saying, the things you guys have been talking about are really resonating with me. And I feel like a lot of us talk about this all the time and getting to the, like the next place where it's like, okay, like how do we actually address this? Because we're very aware that it's happening to us and other people like us. So any, any thoughts or reflections you have, I'd love to hear. Thank you. I can jump in. I have an answer for that. Um, I think for me, what I really had to learn leaving nonprofits was I had to unlearn um, the idea of toxic productivity. And that has been the most important thing for me, um, taking care of yourself. And I, you know, I came straight from college into AmeriCorps, which is a wild environment of overworking. And then I came into nonprofits. And then, you know, I, I was only working only working 28 hours a week um, and I quickly realized that that was just too much for me and that and now I know that we all have different brains we all have different working styles and for some people 40 hours a week is great and that's their normal that's their baseline for me absolutely not I cannot work that much I can't focus for that long um, and so I had to realize that hey, I am okay in what I do and I have to redefine what productivity is to me. And what I came to is that productivity doesn't always mean what you are accomplishing for pay. Like if I take a day of rest and all I do is lounge on my couch and play video games or watch movies and I'm just relaxing my brain, hey, that can be productive. We're socialized to think that that's being lazy but actually it could be really productive for me to take a day of rest because guess what? The next day I can come back refreshed with a fresh perspective, come back to my work and be a lot more efficient in what I'm doing. So I think for me, that was the biggest thing that I, I'm still unlearning about uh, the toxic work culture I was in and sort of indoctrinated into because that's what I came into at the very beginning of my work experience. So learning about, learning that that is an aspect of self-care and caring for yourself, um, that you have to unlearn a lot of these ideas that capitalism makes you uh, feel a lot of shame and guilt for. Yeah. 
I could say something a little bit about that. Just that I think I, I'm the I'm the person that I can do the 40 hours and I'll push and push myself. <laughs> um, but I think it was it's been a strange experience sort of starting buddy starting this whole process just as the pandemic was starting and i've learned as we've like come back into reality um and other spaces and galleries and you know are are starting programming as well that everything can move a little bit slower and i think i can see within the artists that we work with some people are much more comfortable being a little more like casual and like we'll get the work for the shop when we get the work for the shop they need to understand that we only have a couple people on staff and we're going to get to what we can get to when we can so i think that just like the pandemic has sort of reframed people's expectations and if they're not if they're not there yet they they're going to need to get there because everyone's kind of like shifted the way that they function thank you i think i just add that i think some of what I've learned, um, and I want to say that, you know, Amy's presentation was really powerful and really resonates, I think, um, as you showcase the nonprofit industrial complexes is part of the corporate economy. And as myself coming previous to this work from corporate financial institutions, I understand there's really no difference other than the stated purpose. And so I think what you highlighted were that the power dynamics are, are the same. Right, um, and that the veil comes off pretty quickly once you dig a little bit deeper. One thing that I've learned is that we can sort of redefine power dynamics for ourselves, um, primarily by working together to bring our value together. Um, and a lot of the folks that I see thriving in the space and being able to navigate the contradictions are those that come together with other like-minded people, like three or four like-minded people that come together and now they have right uh, pretty much a self-directed consulting firm or a group that works together to sort of find the work, define how they're going to work, what decisions they're going to make, and that bring their their power together to meet each other's needs and to meet their own needs. That the people that I see that are probably the most inspiring are those folks that have figured out a system around that where, hey, we know where we're going to, how we're going to be able to do the work we need to do together. We know where we're gonna need to sort of navigate and work within this crooked system, but how much we're gonna be able to protect ourselves from it by coming together and working together and then finding ways to build value in what we do um, the way we wanna do it. Um, and so I feel like I've seen a lot of folks that are being successful as coming together in small groups to do that, to sort of be committed to working together, to supporting each other, and then allowing each other to work how we need to work, right? Like, so, hey, you need to work this way, I need to work that way, but let's find a balance of working together as a team um, and then creating that, that value from our work that can come back to sustain us. And I think the more we do that, the more we become confident in our ability to be the builders of the system that we don't necessarily need all this grant funding or this funding from government if we can find ways to continue to do that work and get value for it. And then to find folks from our own communities that we can serve in exchange for value. Um, and that that can be a source of uh, a value for us. And as we build that up, um, we don't need folks with those big grants or government 
funding as much. And so just inspired by a lot of that creative experimentation that's out there. And I find that the more that we share what we're doing with each other, collaborate, the more we create those little mini economies where we can share work with each other and we can help all of us sustain ourselves. Hello, hello. So my question is for whoever uh, would like to answer this. So I am a uh, ex-athlete. I still play basketball and everything, but I think that black and indigenous kids grow up thinking that through athletics is the only way for them to be successful. And with that comes the competitive nature, which sometimes shows within the culture and people end up like uh, uh, not helping each other and being like more spread out and more away from each other in the community. However, the athletes like myself, who truly love the art that want to, to combine the two to create a pathway from a world that, from a world that involves a, a competitive nature to a world that involves uh, collective ideas. Uh, my question is, have you guys seen anything outside of the educational system that uh, involves making a pathway from athletics to arts and like inviting that, um, inviting the athletes to the art world? Does that make sense? I don't know. I think the question, just to make sure I'm summarizing right, and you can correct me, Dan, if it's wrong, yeah. but the question was, have y'all come across any pathways outside the education system um, moving from athletics as an entry point into art? Is that right? Yeah, like uh, a way to like combine the two, because there's athletes who want to pursue the art dreams, but are more like confined because they are forced to be in the athletic world forced to play basketball, forced to play football because in their family generations that's what they wanted. But in reality, that athlete wants to be an artist and I feel like there should be like a uh, uh, easier pathway for them to uh, go into that world of art. You know, um, I was seeing if you guys ever seen anything out there that has an idea like that that opens the doors for these athletes to be involved in the art community? I don't know how that... <laughs> Do you know that actually there's some really fascinating Seattle history that relates directly to your question in that um, that the first, so the, the first, you know how they have like night basketball drop-ins at youth centers all across the country. It's a national program. They keep community centers open. Um, that actually began in Seattle, but originally integrated not just the open gyms, but integrated art and culture and, and black theater um, into the programming. And somewhere, some down the line, the creative part was cut out of what was made available to the young folks. And so um, I think that's a vital question. I, I don't know if there's an answer that the panel has to I can offer. Say, I can say one thing, it's not exactly combining athletics or sports you know the pathway to the arts but at least in chicago we and at the, at the shop at buddy we represent a number of organizations that are 
geared towards youth, like mostly high school age students, getting them into the arts. And I, th from the classes I've seen, sort of like getting them set up for a career in, you know, the creative industries um, in Chicago. And they're, they're usually free classes. We have After School Matters, which is run by the city of Chicago. And um, Marwin is a school, uh, Yolo Kali out of the National Museum for Mexican Art. So that's the way, it's not exactly linking sports the way that you're saying, but, and I'm sure obviously see other cities have this as well, but that's, that's the thing that I can think of. It almost, Thank the question you. makes me want to like, ask that question of how do we preserve these continuities, right? Like there's nothing new under the sun and there's all these answers. Um, I feel like the answer to your, your question, Dan, was the answer that somebody came up with 30, 40 years ago. So how, is there a way that we can, through our storytelling and through, through our, our um, seeking, better facilitate continuity in solution making? I don't know of any examples, but I think that, as you mentioned, Julie, like there's a lot of alignment if I think of, right, the athletics community in Seattle in particular, like particularly if I think of around basketball, like and around music and the arts and sort of artists supporting others in their community, um, pursuing, say, arts more towards music. And so I think that that sounds like a great idea in terms of aligning how that works while artists are developing and finding ways to balance that because i think that a lot of athletes from our communities had those same aspirations and dreams but had to choose right and some actually were artists but it just isn't maybe prominently known so i think that that's something that you you know may have the opportunity to be the one to spearhead and recreate right um but it does sound like something that resonates if i think of the you know the athletes and the artists that i know and the folks that are athlete artists and i'd be pretty confident that there are a lot of young people out there um who are currently in that space in in thinking about this i um immediately thought of well dance where you as an athlete you would have you know that would be a pathway but also, something that could and should happen would be a program around playback theater, which includes movement and, you know, and, and there's some groups in Seattle doing playback theater. Um, that'd be a cool thing to explore. Thank you so much. We have a question too that just popped up in the chat that said, if nonprofits could rally around one area to be reformed or changed in our industrial complex, what would you say would make the biggest impact for us as orgs and the people we serve? Oh, wow. Um, that's a big question. Although I have thought about this a little bit after uh, making my film, I, re I personally really do believe that one of the biggest problems or uh, causes of all of these uh, oppressive dynamics within nonprofits is really how they're funded. And so it's about the relationship with funders. So there's an amazing organization, um, which is uh, national. There's a lot of chapters called Community Centric Fundraising. 
And so I believe it's just communitycentricfundraising.org. They have a lot of really great resources. They have an amazing uh, blog that is community curated around how do we move from this idea of donor centrism to community centric fundraising. So instead of focusing everything that the organization is doing around catering to the donor and funders and wealthy institutions, how do we make this more of a uh, diffuse that and make it more of a, a community centric effort and, and a reminder that community means everyone. It includes everyone and it includes those funders. It includes all those wealthy institutions. It includes government, all of that. Um, but it's about not focusing on just those people that give you money and focusing on the entire community. Um, and so that's what I'll say about that. I'll let you look into more of that resource, but that's what I would say, that relationship with um, funders. And also on the website, there is a, um, they have in the, on their resource page, a list of community-centric fundraising aligned actions. And it's sort of this whole checklist of things that an organization can look at in terms of what are you doing with your relationships with funders. And one of those um, things that I wanna just call out is, is how you interact with funders in terms of giving them feedback about how they are running their funding practices. So a huge problem that I've seen is funders requiring organizations, especially small organizations with small staff to have all of these reporting requirements um, which basically takes a whole other staff person in order to meet all of those reporting requirements. Um, and so how do we better interact with funders to say like, hey, this is not accessible. This is not workable. In order for us to even accept your money, we basically have to have a whole dedicated staff person just to cater to you. And that's donor centrism. And that's not what we wanna be doing. So in order to change the sector, we need to look at the root. And one of the roots is how it's funded. So we need to be giving that feedback to funders. We need to be telling them, hey, this is unworkable. We need to do this differently. Otherwise, we can no longer work with you. And also, we're going to tell everybody else, this is unworkable. We don't want to work with you anymore, even as a funder, right? And it takes a lot. It's a radical shift to say to, say to someone who's going to potentially give you hundreds of thousands of dollars, we can't work with you and we're going to give you this feedback. We're going to be really direct about this, but this is how we change systems. If everyone rallies around this idea and stands up to people that are, that want to give funding, but they want to control how you're doing all that funding. They want to control how you're reporting back to them. They want you to hold their hand, right? We have to say, we're not going to hold your hand. We need you to trust us. We need you to trust that we work with the communities. You don't. And we know how to best use this money to do what we need to do. So stop putting all these requirements on us. So community-centric fundraising. Thank you so much. I love that answer. And I also want to dig in on this question because I feel it's so important because so many of us are unavoidably intertwined with the nonprofit sector, especially doing cultural work in this region. And um, to me, one thing I always think about is overcoming the divide and conquer effect, right? The systems where you're always in competition with the folks that you should be building in solidarity with. Um, there are so many replications and inefficiencies that existed in just because there's these little gaps and conversations that weren't had, uh, collaboration that didn't take place. 
And I believe if we're really talking about the impact that we want to have versus the perpetuation of our organization or our program or the whatever, if we want to really center the impact, it has to come down to how we subversively collaborate with those around us. And, and, and I think that, Amy, that part of it is that changing the relationship with the funders, right? Because that's about transforming the relationships and the power dynamics, but at the same time, if we are seeking to perpetuate, to remain just as an organization, as a unit, as, a, um, as the words versus the actual impact. Uh, that's, a, that's a flaw. I just kind of lost my train of thought. But I think that um, being here, being a part of Common Field, an organization that has chose to sunset itself, is um, a really intriguing part of the conversation. And I kind of want to urge some of our Common Field folks to speak a little bit about that, because I believe it's actually something that needs to happen a little bit more. I believe um, letting go of these like organizational identities and labels is a part of how we create really radical and transformative relationships. So, Chito, if you're still down there, I don't know if y'all wanna. Hi, uh, hi, this is Chito. Uh, hold on, just one second. Okay, sorry, I was just uh, asking a few of my staff members if they wanted to chime in. Uh, I work at Common Field, Julie, thank you. Uh, for mentioning that, uh, yeah, a lot of the things you said, all of you today, uh, are in some ways the sum of why we decided to make the decision that we made. Um, when the organization decided to take a look at itself and the work that it had done, both the good work it had done, the challenging work it had done, and maybe even some of the harms it had caused intentionally, unintentionally, through Struck, being structured as a nonprofit and working in a, you know, trying to work within a system that, in some ways, as you guys have talked about, goes against the values of the work, or like comes into conflict with the values of the work, and I think a lot of nonprofits struggle with this for many, many years in their life, and uh, Common Field, because of I will full disclosure, because we were well-funded in a certain way, we were able to make this choice because we were able to make the choice with funding support that allowed us to sunset the organization in an intentional way and take care of our staff and take care of our network and take care of the field and kind of, I like to think of it as a return to our founding values, but the work of getting to that point required like serious self-reflection and interrogation of not just the work we were doing, but the way we were doing it, if that makes sense. Um, I'll stop there. Um, Chris has a few thoughts, who's our Associate Director of Communications and Operations. Hey there, uh, my name is Chris. I work for Common Field. I have for the last two and a half years. Um, I'm just joining this conversation right now, so I apologize if I don't have full context, but based on this prompt that you just shared, Julie, um, I think it's interesting because I think that oftentimes we confuse the label nonprofit as a kind of values-based identity and not a tax status, which is what it is fundamentally. Um, and I think that there is a tendency within nonprofit organizations, I think especially in the arts and culture field, to 
want to keep growing at any and all costs, to always scale up and make, make the work bigger, reach more people, become more visible. And it's worth asking if the work that needs to happen requires that kind of scale. And if just existing in perpetuity is actually the way to exist that is aligned with the founding values as Sheetal just spoke to. Um, and so yeah, I think more organizations should sunset and close and redistribute their resources. Or we are redistributing some resources and also most of our resources are coming from a foundation and so that's another interesting question, right? Like, where will those resources go after Common Field closes the resources that have kept this organization afloat? How will that funder choose to allocate them? Because they, they have to allocate them in order to maintain their tax status as a foundation. So that's the other thing. It's like there are incentives and, and benefits for all parties involved in these funding relationships. It is not like, oh my God, thank you so much foundation for giving us money. It's like, Foundation gives us money because that way foundation allows itself to retain its tax-exempt status as foundation, right? So I think, I think it, it is in our interest to keep kind of like pushing these conversations in more critical directions and thinking about what the right way to utilize this money and these resources really is. Okay, thanks. Just really quick, I wanted to follow up mostly because I'm so emotional about what you're, we're talking about right now. Yesterday, I decided to close Sunset, a nonprofit that I kept alive even after it was no longer doing programming for two years, three years, and it's the emotional connection. It's a st tax structure. I know it costs some money to establish and a lot of work and a lot of people put a lot of their heart and soul into all of the work and the programming over the years, but that's gonna be with me forever. I, I need to be able to transition myself. I'm just one person right now. All that programming has a life of its own. So I'm sharing, going, and that I'm going through that right now. Thank you for all, all of your energy and input into it. Thank you, and you're welcome to talk to any of our staff about that experience. Um, I'm the co-director of a nonprofit <laughs> called SEEDS, Social Ecology Education and Demonstration School. And we have not raised any money for our nonprofit for about, I think, 10 years now. Um, we just exist, and we exist so we can be an umbrella for others. Um, we've done projects without any funding um, in the community, including the Tacoma Story Hive Project.com. So if people are interested in what a Story Hive is and why you might need one in your community, I recommend checking out our Story Hive project. Um, but I think nonprofits can exist without um, doing all the formal bullshit. We don't have a board. <laughs> we don't have any resources. We just have neighbors 
who provide mutual aid and share and scavenge materials to do things. We create dialogue. Um, I don't know that anyone cares that seeds.org exists or not, um, and it doesn't matter to us. But if there's a young artist or activist that wants to do a project that needs an umbrella organization, they can use us. So that's another way to imagine how a nonprofit could work. Thanks. Thank you so much. If there is one more question down there on the field or in the chat, maybe we have time for one more before we transition. I want to give a little bit of a break before we go into our um, hot seat section, but. All right, I guess not. Um, do, I want to also extend to y'all, if any of uh, you who are presenting or if, um, part of the conversation here on the Zoom would like to any final words to add Amy, Stella, or uh, Chikuna? Maybe ways to carry the conversation forward on the Discord, because I feel like it really hit um, some nerves here. So, if, if you all have any resources that you could recommend, like readings, groups, things that have you been part of that have helped you in your process and supported you in your work. It looks like we have one more comment um, on the floor here in Washington Hall. Hello. Hey, uh, my name is Jack. There's a Discord uh, channel or server that has uh, lots of different channels, and I think uh, this, this conversation can definitely be continued on, on Discord. Uh, on the topic of resources, uh, like Julie just brought up, we are all resources. We all have perspectives and uh, stories. And I think uh, keeping that conversation rolling uh, in a space that will, will stay uh, active and accessible is uh, definitely a good step. Um, um, if you would like any uh, insight on how to get connected to the Discord, uh, I think it's all on the schedules as well as by the registration uh, office. And um, you can come find me. I'll be walking around. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jack. Jack did a wonderful job of setting up that Discord. And I think that we'll start like a channel on there that's specific to, you know, nonprofit recovery, nonprofit support group, 501c3 something, I don't know. But um, it's something to where folks can, you know, continue this conversation. And uh, gratitude to all y'all for coming and sharing. Um, I know we had some technical blips, but we get through it and it always is as it should be. So. Uh, so much thanks, I'm looking forward to the next time that we can build and um, hoping that that container at Discord helps to carry things forward and the connectivity forward because I think that that's where it's at. Um, thank y'all so much. Hello, I'm Chris Tyler from Common Field. Thank you for listening to this recording from What Now? Towards Artist-Led Movements which took place at Washington Hall in Seattle's Central District and online from Friday, September 30th through Sunday, October 2nd, 2022. Lead organizers V. Hua and Julie Chang-Shulman programmed many of these sessions, and partners Elisha Johnson, Randy Engstrom, and Ann Folk helped shape the ideas and aspirations of this gathering. 
and many presenters, advisors, and other local culture bearers had integral roles in the development and making of this event. We would like to thank you, our listeners, as well as our partners, presenters, advisors, project team, staff, board, and supporters for making Common Field's final gathering so thoughtful and enduring. What Now was made possible through the support of our funders, including For Culture, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts. We'd also like to thank Josh Nucci and his fellow musicians for contributing the grooves you heard in this episode. We would also like to thank our documentary partner, Jack Straw Cultural Center, for producing and hosting these recordings. We invite you to browse the rest of the What Now audio archive at jackstraw.org. That's J-A-C-K-S-T-R-A-W dot O-R-G. 